you know, when I hear the word politics, there's a lot of negative baggage that kind of comes along with that for me, uh, some of the things that I see and observe and, and that kind of thing, but uh, maybe sometimes it helps to, to define a word. And so politics, for example, uh, comes with the prefix poly, which means many, uh, and ticks, which are those blood-sucking insects. Um, and, and so, like, that's kind of our experience. Sometimes they come with disease, you know, debilitating disease. And, and it seems like uh, maybe, especially in the, the lack of unity that we see sometimes when it comes to politics, uh, those are some of the things that, that we see uh, going along. But uh, today we're not talking about uh, Republicans and Democrats and bloodsuckers and disease causers when it comes to uh, politics as we typically think about it. But we're going to be taking a look at the Christmas story through what God communicates about his politics. What I mean by that is politics, you can kind of break it down into some P words. Isn't that really convenient? It, is that as you look at societal politics, it, it kind of shakes out in being things like, how are we going to divvy up power, uh, privilege, and prestige? And then you bring along uh, economics in that, and then you say, well, how are we going divvy, to divvy up possessions as well? And so a lot of times when we talk about politics, those are the things that we're, we're thinking about. Uh, possessions really comes into play uh, because, you know, we kind of follow the golden rule when it comes to that. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And yet God comes along with Jesus and his birth and his politics about power and privilege and prestige and possessions are completely upside down from the world's version of that. And he really shows that through the birth of Jesus. And so, in a sense, Christmas is a political story, and I want to share with you how as we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning. And, and here's, a, here's a classic part of the Christmas story that, that most of us are familiar with. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So you say, okay, that, that's the shepherd story. I'm not sure that that has anything to do with God's politics until you start to think about, wait, wait, who was it exactly that God chose to announce the birth of his son to? Because if, if you've ever had somebody, like a close friend, maybe has shared that they're going to the hospital and their baby's about to be born, or maybe, you, uh, maybe you've had kids and so you've gone to the hospital and you've contacted specific people, you think through the kind of people that you're going to let know that you're having a kid. It's going to be people that are special to you. They're going to be people that are close to you. I mean, some of you might be like, I'm going to Facebook Live my, my delivery or something like that. That's a little, that's a little sketchy. Uh, so we're getting kind of crazy with that kind of stuff. But normally, typically, it's going to be people that man, you hold in very high regard and high esteem in your life. And God, when he picks up the phone to humanity and says, hey, my son is about to be born, he picks the shepherds. Shepherds. Now, shepherds are kind of maybe a little bit romanticized for us when it comes to the Christmas story. And, and we look throughout the Bible, and shepherds are spoken about very positively. In fact, Jesus is called the shepherd. He's going to come and rule as a shepherd. But as far as like society and how they viewed shepherds, shepherds were, were well, they're smelly. 
because they hang out with sheep. I don't know if you've done that very often. Uh, They have a lot of dirty jobs that come along with that. Um, There's not really a whole lot of downtime when it comes to herding sheep. They need a lot of care and attention. Sheep are are dumb, and and the Bible points that out, and the Bible calls us sheep, and so I'm not sure how that works out with uh, how God views us, and I'm, I'm just kidding, small joke. Um, but but they have a lot of, a lot of tasks and stuff that kind of keep them from being a part of society in the way that everybody would expect them to be. So a lot of times they would end up unclean. So from a religious standpoint, uh, they wouldn't be able to worship in the way that everybody would expect them to be able to do that. Um, they, uh, their responsibilities would keep them from participating in ways that uh, people would expect in, in the society for that. And so when God announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, he's doing something very significant there. He's not announcing it to the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of the day. They're the ones who are the scholars. They're the ones who have the Bible memorized and are teaching people how to follow God. He doesn't share it with the Sadducees. They're the political elite, and they're the ones who are ruling the temple and synagogues and, and showing people you know, how they're supposed to interact with the Roman Empire and all that kind of stuff. God chooses the shepherds, the undereducated, the smelly, the low class, the socially marginalized, and the religiously looked down upon. So, you know, you think about the angels, who are, the heavens are about to open up. They're about to praise and about to say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men, because Jesus is born. And God says, yeah, 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 I got a group of guys I want you to go, you know, say this to. Maybe get the choir together. And who, well, who is it? What's this group of shepherds just out of, out of Bethlehem? And their response would be, what, really? Are you, are you sure? Like, that's who, that's who you want to share that with. It's not very... It's not very politically correct of God here. And, and it gets even more politically incorrect and becomes even more strange when you realize that the other group that God invites to come and celebrate the birth of Jesus are the wise men. And, and I've told you guys before, the wise men weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They come along later. Jesus is in a house. It's about, he's about two years old when he comes along. But the other group of people that God invites to come and hang out and party you know, with the birth of Jesus to be there are these Eastern astrologers and wise men, people who are not historically followers of God, to travel this great distance to come and pay their respects and honor to God. And what's significant about this is that these wise men were considered Gentiles. These were, I mean, there's a clear political demarcation when it came to the nation of Israel and anybody else in the world. For the Israelites, they were God's chosen people, and everybody else were not. And so anybody outside of the nation, outside of that ethnicity, they were considered to be less than because they were not God's chosen people. And so God's communicating something very significant, the fact that these wise men, these outsiders, are invited in to celebrate the birth of Jesus is incredibly significant. These were not God's people, and yet they were invited to come and be a part of the birth of Jesus. And so imagine you're God, and you choose to announce your son to shepherds and to people who aren't Jewish. What does that begin to tell us about how God views people and power and privilege and prestige and possessions? And, and there's a whole other one that's maybe even more significant than any of that, that God chooses Mary 
to be the one through whom his son comes into the world. Mary, who, I mean, we, we think of Mary as like, man, she's great, she's amazing, she's a woman of faith, and all those things are true, but that's not how people around her were looking at her. Mary was looked at as, oh, she's the unwed teen mom, you know, the one that Joseph didn't want to marry because obviously she cheated on him or did something. Or Joseph, you know, he, well, he's the dishonorable man who couldn't keep his hands to himself uh, for as long as he was supposed to. And so that couple, Joseph and Mary, were looked at as very scandalous in the way that Jesus came into the world. We've gotten so used to the story that maybe it doesn't seem strange that God would choose Jesus to come this way. But listen to what Mary had to say. Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 34. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. (laughs) What are you about to ask me to do? And wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? This... God, are you sure that you've thought this through? I mean, Jesus could have come in any way God saw fit. He could have come as the child of a king and queen. I mean, at the very least, he could have been born to a couple that lives in the suburbs and has a nice SUV. And and yet this is not how God chooses to bring his son into the world. He chooses an unmarried teenage girl to give birth in the place reserved for animals. And Bethlehem, Bethlehem was not like a center of power and prestige and privilege. I mean, Bethlehem, it's like, it's like you know, saying, I'm going to send Jesus and have him be born in Bumpus, you know, out in Louisa. I can say that. My family lives in Bumpus. And so what does picking no power, no privilege, no prestige Mary tell us about God and his politics, like how he deals and thinks about people? Well, Mary's response to the angel tells us a lot about that, tells us a lot about God's and his politics. In Luke chapter 1, Mary says... My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Later down in verse 50, she continues and says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That's... That's the politics of God. And don't misunderstand what this is saying. This is not saying that someone is automatically more noble or more good or more godly simply because of their economic status, because they're poor. But it does mean that God doesn't look at people. He doesn't look at situation. He doesn't look at life and circumstances like we do. God is not impressed with people just because they have power, privilege, and prestige. He's not impressed with people who are impressed with themselves or seek to impress others with what they have in this life. And God is especially not impressed with people who use whatever power, privilege, and prestige and possessions they have in this life for themselves. God's politics are upside down from the politics of this world. That's why Jesus says whoever is first will be last and whoever is last will be first. He's not just talking about the amount of money that you have. He's not saying that the richest people are in trouble and the poorest will be rewarded. The scale Jesus is talking about is not simply financial. He's referring to those who are proud versus those who are humble. 
In fact, James says, I mean, in, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, in the second half of the verse, Peter says and refers to a verse in Proverbs, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And this is what God does and what he shows with the birth of Jesus. God loves everyone, but he opposes, he works against the proud. You know, those that make themselves number one in life. Those that look around and say, hey, I'm responsible for my success. I'm responsible for the things that I have in my life. This is all about me. When people take all the prosperity and the possessions and power that God has blessed them with in life and use it only for themselves, he still loves that person. But they're going to be opposed to who God is and what he's doing. They may seem to be first now, but in the end, they'll be last because God opposes the proud, and yet God gives grace to the humble. God is on the side of, he protects and comes to the rescue of those who humble themselves and rely on and give God the glory. Those who don't have possessions and power, or those who have it but use it to bless others. They may seem to be in last place now, but they will end up in first because God gives grace to the humble. These are the politics of God. God chooses to impress the world with those who humble themselves before him. Christmas has this untold political story, and it turns out that God's politics are upside down compared to the world. And this is, this is how it impacts our lives and how we interact with the people in this world and how God chooses to interact with us through Jesus. It means if, if we want to be followers of Jesus and become more like God, it means we need to stop looking at people the same way that the world does. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. When people look at the world, they're looking for things like the color of someone's skin, the car that they drive, the clothes that they wear, the size of their house, their gender, their political party, their job. They see the power and the prestige and the privilege and the possessions, but God doesn't look at people that way. And so neither should we. This is why God chose Mary to give birth to his son. This is why he chose the wise men to come and give honor and pay homage to Jesus. And this is why when God scanned the landscape to select who he was going to announce Jesus to first, he picked the shepherds. And so we think about the people who are the downtrodden, who are the looked down upon, who are the people that sit in the cafeteria by themselves, who are the people that are not socially acceptable, that don't get invited in to what everyone else is doing, who is lonely around us. We start to consider those people and look at them differently in our lives. Because our default as human beings is we tend to look for people to surround ourselves with, to become friends with, and treat people better who are a little bit more maybe handsome a little bit prettier, who have a little bit more money, a little bit bigger house, who have a little bit more power to lift us up to a higher place, maybe socially, or in a job, or in a relationship. But that's the politics of the world. And so God looks at people and he says, don't look for people who are necessarily going to lift you up to a higher place in the world, but look around to people that you can stoop down for and to help up in your life. God looked for and chose the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and we get the same opportunity as followers of Jesus to look for those same types of people in our life. And so here's the second thing 
Uh, it's, it's not enough to simply find those types of people in our life, the shepherds and the wise men and the Marys in our, in our life, and, and look at them differently, but we're all also called uh, to, uh, to share our lives with them and to serve them. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we're told that it's for by grace, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is from the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. But we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved to do good works. And so the politics of God leads us not to simply see how much we can get out of the situations and circumstances and the people that surround us, but how much we can pour into those people and circumstances. Listen, listen to this, and I, I don't have this passage up on the screen, but I, I, and, and some of that's intentional because I, I want you to listen to the progression of thought that God communicates in Isaiah chapter 58 for the nation of Israel and see how that plays into how we think about people in the world and our place in it as Christ followers. And so here's, here's God speaking in Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 2. For day after day... They seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail." And so much of what God is saying to the nation of Israel at this time and what he's saying to us through Jesus is that and you want to be close to God, you want to experience him in your life, it's not not enough simply to go through religious practice in your life where, I mean, you guys are the best because you came here on a snowy Sunday. But it goes beyond that. It's not just about us being in here and worshiping God and focusing our lives and ourselves on him for this hour that we're together, but it's also about how we're looking at people and treating, it, treating them as we go about our business and our lives and how we think about some of those family gatherings that maybe we're dreading with the people that we're maybe are not excited to be around and thinking about them in terms of how God does versus how we tend to by default. See, God points out, it's like, you, 
you, you love me, in Isaiah chapter 58, you love me, you say that you love me, you're doing these things to love me, but you don't love, and you're not showing love to the people that I love. The people that I created to be in relationship to me, the people that I showed through Jesus, that and Jesus is for everyone, regardless of their status, status. And that our privilege from God through Jesus is for serving others. That's why God sent Jesus in the way that he did. And so we get the opportunity to make, make a decision each day that whatever sort of power, maybe you feel like you don't have any, but you do through Jesus, that whatever kind of power or privilege or prestige and possessions that you have as a Christ follower is not just for you, that God hasn't just blessed you in your life for you to be able to experience that, but it is also for the people who are around you in your life, that you will use your life to look out for others, especially those in need, and that you're not simply going to wait for the big glorious opportunities to be able to do it, but do it in the everyday living out of your life to be a servant the way that we were created to live out our faith in Jesus with every opportunity that we have. And that's one of the untold stories of God in this Christmas that he wants us to experience, that he wants for our life, is that he wants to grow our hearts in this way. He wants us to understand and really live out what it means to love God and love people. It's what he showed us through Jesus. And to do that, we need to look at people differently, and we need to treat people differently. And to do that, we need to understand what God communicated with how Jesus was born in this, into this world. So as we prepare to take a communion this morning, one of the things I, I just want to share um, as part of Jesus, you know, is like, what, what kind of political persuasion would Jesus be? Well, there's only one earthly kingdom that Jesus was ever concerned about and interested in, and that's the kingdom of God. And so he invites us as Christ followers to be mindful of what Jesus lived his life for. He lived his life to show us and share with us the, uh, the living out of God's grace and what that looks like and what it entails. And it's not just about loving God, it's also about sharing that love with others. And so as we take communion together this morning on this snowy Sunday and we take this bread and we drink uh, this cup that represents Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood for us, we also remember that Jesus didn't stay on the cross, that he resurrected again, and he invites us to share that with others with how we live our lives. Let's pray as we share in communion together. God, we thank you for uh, the stillness and the quiet to be able to uh, maybe slow our lives down to consider uh, your beauty around us. And so we thank you for these moments of, of snow that kind of change and uh, interrupt our plans, uh, opportunities for us to, uh, to consider your glory. And God, as we uh, consider what you communicated by how Jesus came in Christmas, um, in this time of Christmas, that, that we would look at people differently, and that we'd look at opportunities to be involved in others' lives uh, differently because of uh, what Jesus has done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.